frowned upon us wisdom and understanding, that being taught by you in the Holy Scripture, our hearts and minds may be open to receive all that leads to life and holiness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The first scripture this morning from the Old Testament is from Deuteronomy, chapter 8, the first 10 verses. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know that what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding the old man, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during those forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and revering them. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams and pools of water, with springs flowing in the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olives, oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce, and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron, and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And the second is in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your needs do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or you, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? <laughs> Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Finally, our gospel reading comes from the gospel according to John. This is from chapter 14, starting at verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And Matthew 28, in Jesus' closing words in that gospel, says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The gospels tell us time and time again that the purpose of the disciples, the church, of all the people who choose to follow Jesus, that purpose is to spread the news of Jesus' love to all people. It's our job as a faith community to make sure everyone out there knows that forgiveness is for them too. Matthew 25 says that we are supposed to be feeding the hungry, giving water to the thirsty, visiting the sick and imprisoned, clothing the naked. But in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes to the church that their gatherings are not only not improving the lives of everyone and providing spiritual edification, they are making everything worse. <coughs> Can you imagine if one of the big shots of the church were to walk into our little church this morning and tell us we're not being a very good church, and in fact, we're making things worse for people? Ouch. The first problem that Paul specifically points out to the church in Corinth is that there are divisions 
in the church. Now, Paul doesn't expect everyone to agree on everything all the time, but he does expect them to be open, honest, and kind to one another in their interactions. The problem he is seeing is that there are some people in the church who are eating and drinking and fully participating in the meals, while others are left out. They have dragged in the worldly sins of division and injustice and inequality and are ignoring the hungry, and they brought them into church. Now, it's possible that the sin of economic injustice wasn't the only thing Paul was worried about. It's also been suggested that the Christian meals in Corinth were taking on some of the darker traditions of Greco-Roman life. At many a Roman home around the table, the feasters would bring in and make fun of people who were disabled, deformed, obese, or different in a variety of other ways. And then they would make them perform as they jeered at them. Now, even if that extreme were not the case, it's clear that the Christian community in Corinth was not behaving in Christian ways, even when they were gathering under the premise of a church gathering. They were not caring for the least of these, as Jesus calls the church to do in Matthew 25. And Paul says, do you want me to be proud of you for this behavior? No way. He refuses to pat them on the back for acting in ways that are contrary to the gospel of love. Jesus commanded the disciples to carry out to all people. He's not going to let them off the hook because they call themselves Christians and gather for church. The church at Corinth was not going out to all people. They were staying in with the people that they were comfortable with, the ones that looked and acted and shopped like they did. They were even keeping separate from other Christians who had less or were of a different social status. And they were not teaching others to observe the compassionate teachings of Jesus to care for the hungry, the poor, the widowed, the orphaned, the prisoner. I know many people who don't come to church because they feel as if the church is making things worse in the world, not better. They see Westboro Baptist Church picketing funerals and shouting hate speech. They see the cliques that many churches develop, making it next to impossible for someone new to really become part of the church. They hear you're going to hell out of the mouths of so-called Christians far more often than you are loved. They see people who piously go to church every Sunday, then come home and act like the rest of the mean, messed up world on Monday through Saturday. They hear Christians judging other people for their behavior and then not doing much of anything to clean up their own act. Then you probably know a few people who feel this way too. In fact, if you can't think of anyone in your life who feels that way, it's probably because the people in your life who feel that way just don't feel comfortable admitting it to you. Or you've isolated yourself with other Christians and you maybe need to get out a little more. The gospel can't spread if we don't have anyone to share it with. It's inherently unchristian to only spend time with other Christians. But it's easy to isolate ourselves. And to ignore those who have a bad taste in their mouth when it comes to church or to religion in general. It's more comfortable to be with people who don't challenge us. It's safer to stay only with people who want to see us grow in our faith, rather than those who want to argue against it or question its validity. Sometimes, strike that usually, I hate the question, so what do you do for a living? because it means I cannot avoid having a conversation about faith. I have a great big target right on my head. It's just built into my job title, like how doctors get asked everyone's medical questions. 
The second I say I'm a pastor, the floodgates have opened. The can of worms has been opened and cannot be closed again. Now, if I'm lucky, they will only be curious about how a woman could possibly be a pastor. Our tradition, as well as others, have been ordaining women for decades, but this is still a newsflash in some circles. Often, though, it turns into an ad hoc spiritual direction session or a conversation about how the church or someone claiming to be Christian has hurt the other person. Other times, the other person will let loose a lament about all the terrible things that have been done throughout history in the name of religion. And almost always, I feel like I'm immediately forced to be on the defense. And those kind of conversations are exhausting, are they not? Even if they are friendly and not combative. Now, I'm not saying that we should be combative or go out and argue with every non-Christian on the street. That also is not terribly effective. But we should be willing and open to have conversations with people about what this, the Christian faith, really is. Because if we're not talking about the great things that God has done for us, all other people are hearing are the negative things that everyone else is saying. If we aren't out there loudly proclaiming the love of Jesus to all people, all that others are going to hear is hate and fear, because hate and fear are very loud, and they are rarely shy. But we take the easy road, often. We forget what God has done for us, or we wrap it up in a safe, tiny package and set it on a safe shelf out of the reach of others. Sure, we count our blessings from time to time, but we forget the radical nature of this gift we are given. We forget how Jesus didn't come just so we could feel a little less sad or lonely in our day-to-day -day lives or find an extra five bucks in our pocket we forgot about. He didn't come to leave a few quotes behind that we could embroider on some pretty little throw pillows. Jesus came so that our lives might be turned completely upside down by the wild, exciting life that God intended us to lead. John 10.10 10 says that I came that they might have life and they might have it abundantly. Jesus came so that we might all truly know God and experience the love of the one who created this all. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And as we see in John 14, even when knowingly facing his own violent death, Jesus offers peace. Not vengeance, not self-reliance, not some you have the strength to do this. He offers peace. No peace that is forced, but peace that is real. Not peace that lasts just a little while, but eternal peace. It's not a peace that's a gift given one day and taken back or diminished the next. And Jesus left for us an important remembrance of that, of the abundance, of the salvation, of the peace that he grants us. A way to celebrate this crazy, wild, loving, wonderful, world-shaking thing that God did for us. This table at which we are all called to gather as equals and celebrate his gift to us and our unity to one another. In keeping to ourselves and protecting our safe, familiar ways, we tame the communion table. Like the Israelites wandering in the desert who keep forgetting what they had just been rescued from in Egypt. We wander around in mundane, everyday life, forgetting 
what we have been rescued from by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. To the church in Corinth, Paul says, remember, remember what Jesus did for you. Built into the life of the church is this way of remembering what he did for us. Invite everyone you know to join us at this table. When someone begins to show signs of memory loss, the very first thing doctors will tell them after addressing medical issues is to keep as mentally active as possible. The less you try to remember, the less you will remember. They also will tell you to be in community. Don't isolate yourself because community is very important to the human memory and identity. Routine is also very important to remembering. It's easier to remember things we remember in the same way all the time. Keeping physically active and healthy is also important to combating memory loss. Our physical bodies are connected to our brains and the two affect one another. And so the solution that we as a church are given to our chronic memory loss, our forgetfulness of our identity and our core message of the gospel, is to keep trying to remember. Celebrate communion. Celebrate it in community with one another. Celebrate it regularly. Remember that in the physical act of eating bread and drinking from the cup, we are triggering something deeper than just our digestive system. John Berquist says, in wine and grape juice, in wafer and tablet and loaf, in prayer rail and brass tray, in all the variations we find our many differences given concrete form. These differences divide us, but the fact that we all continue together around communion tables is an important expression of who we are, the one church of God. Communion has the power to bring us back together at the one table of Jesus, even against our petty struggling for the positions that define our own righteousness. When we all come together on the same day, on World Communion Sunday, this day, we make a statement to those around us that all people are deserving of God's love, and all people are deserving of our love. We reaffirm the gospel of Jesus, and we are then sent out to share it with others, not keep it to ourselves. The gospel is reaffirmed today through community and communal action. I do now as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Jesus gives the disciples a sending, a benediction. So today, let us follow the example of Jesus. Today, let us remember what he did for us as we celebrate communion together. And then let us rise up and go from here, sharing that great news with the whole world around us.